What is up, Z-Pack? It's your boy, Z-Dog MD. Today, I have a special guest, Dr. Dylan Carney, emergency physician, brother from another mother. And we're going to talk about something that's crazy important, which is medication-assisted therapy for opioid dependency. We don't like to say addiction anymore, do we, Dylan? Yeah, that's fallen out of favor. Why? Why is that? Ooh, that's a great question. I, I think it just carries a little bit of stigma with it. So we use dependency or opioid use disorder nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got, so Dr. Brown's in the back. By the way, today's, there she is. What up? What's what up? up? You guys remember Denise Brown? So Denise Brown uh, did a show with me. She's from Vituity and so is Dylan. Uh, Vituity is the company that's sponsoring this show. She, they're just giving us uh, backing to talk about things that really matter that they're actually involved in, but it's not even a commercial for Vituity. It's us being able to actually talk about stuff meaningfully. Yeah. And medication-assisted therapy is crucial because when people show up to the ER with opioid dependency issues, mm -hmm. whatever you wanna call it, whatever the PC term is right now, it's causing lots of suffering. And it's causing suffering for our frontline staff mm -hmm. because we have no tools. We just say, well, okay, go f into a rehab program that I know you're not gonna do or you're not gonna be able to afford or mm -hmm. I have no tools to treat you aside from giving you dilaudid and telling you to go mm -hmm. or throwing my hands up and then wondering why we're seeing more violence in the emergency department. And so how has how did this sort of shape your path? Because you're like a Stanford trained dude, UCSF, all this other hotshot stuff, but you're struggling with the same issues that anyone on the front lines is struggling with. How did that then lead you to medication assisted therapy? We'll just call it MAT from now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thanks for thanks for having me here on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I think this topic kind of creeped up on me and um, and and uh, was something I didn't anticipate uh, finding myself in. Mm. Um, but training uh, training over the last ten years and starting my practice, of course, the opioid uh, crisis has been um, increasing, and I'm seeing it more and more in the emergency department. And everyone is, no matter where you are. Um, so over uh, 2016 to 2017, we saw about a 30% increase in ED uh, visits for opioid overdoses and opioid-related problems. Where are you mainly practicing now? I practice right now at Marin Health. Marin, okay, Northern gotcha. California. Yeah, we were up there recently, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So um, when I finished my residency, um, I did a fellowship in administration and uh, management with Vituity. Um, and during that process, we picked kind of like a thesis project to work on. Wait, so wait, so you were training to be an evil administrator? Is that what I'm sort understanding? Of, yeah, exactly. Yep. I'm sorry, this interview is officially over. No, no, keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and at that point, uh, we were, uh, there was a lot more evidence um, that we should be doing uh, buprenorphine or medication-assisted treatment out of the emergency department. Um, and actually, it was something that had just started um, during my chief year in residency at San Francisco General. Um, mm. And so even just with that one year of kind of experience um, using buprenorphine in my own practice, I became kind of a sort of relative expert and I just kind of ran with it and I continued kind of learning more about it and uh, for my project decided to work with all of our other emergency departments throughout Vituity um, to tr uh, train their docs and how to use buprenorphine to treat opioid use disorder. So buprenorphine is Suboxone, correct? Uh, more or, or less, yes. More or less. Yes. So you're talking about really, truly doing medication-assisted therapy, which you're going to see in comments. So people get very triggered by this idea mm -hmm. of giving a drug to treat dependency yeah. on a drug. Exactly. How do you think about that in a, in a, in a sense in terms of, of, of this sort of trade-off between are you then make, making them dependent on another drug and mm -hmm. as an emergency physician, how, how, does, how does that work? Yeah, there, that's the number one question I get is aren't you just replacing one drug with another or one addiction with another? Um, but uh, Suboxone or Buprenorphine is not really a, a, not a frequently abused medication. It's not euphoric. What it does is, is it helps treat people's cravings um, and stay off of use. 
Um, everyone in this area will cite um, a big study from 2015 out of Yale um, where they did a randomized control trial and they looked at patients who presented to the emergency department with opioid withdrawal something we see very frequently. Um, and they randomized them to one of three arms. In the first arm, patients got a referral to treatment, which is kind of, I'd say, the standard of care. You know, a lot of places when patients come in with opioid use disorders, you have kind of a list, a piece of paper of referral treatment centers, and you say, good luck, um, go follow up with this program. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. yeah. Um, Not as a patient, <laughs> or I'd be violating my own HIPAA, but as, as a clinician. Well, yeah. fair enough. I mean, the opioid uh, crisis affects everyone in their own families as well. So I, I, I can't name one person who doesn't have someone hasn't in their family or friend group who hasn't been touched by it. Yeah. Um, so by the that, way, weigh in the comments if you have a family or, or a friend who's been touched by this, because I tell you it's overwhelming, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so arm one was you get, the, you get a referral to treatment. Arm two is you get a, a brief counseling intervention referral to treatment. And then arm number three was you actually start buprenorphine in the emergency department in a referral to treatment. And they found that the people who actually got their first dose of buprenorphine in the emergency department were nearly twice as likely to be retained in treatment 30 days later. Wow. So just, just the act of getting that first dose there was more likely to lead to 30-day, you know, what we'll call Retention. success, right? Yeah. Retention. Exactly. Whereas, so the other options were just like you're referred and then the other one is you're counseled and referred. Yep. And how big was the trial again? Ooh, I don't know how many patients. Right, right. Yeah. But it was big but, enough to yeah. show a, a no. statistical yeah. significantly difference there in, yeah. a, in outcome. So, so why do you think that is? What, what's going on? Well, the other, the other awesome benefit about uh, buprenorphine is it's the best medication we have to treat withdrawal. So we, it, it, withdrawal is a really challenging thing to treat without using an opioid. Right? So you get someone who's nauseous, they're vomiting, they feel awful, they have abdominal pain, they're shaking um, in real florid withdrawal because they tried to quit maybe one or two days ago. Um, and they come in for help and you give them some Zofran, maybe you max out your Zofran, you give them Tylenol, ibuprofen, IV fluids. I've they're, been there. they're still barfing and you're not getting anywhere. Yeah. They're in your department for hours and hours and then maybe sometimes you even admit them because you can't get them comfortable. I've had that call. Yeah. yeah. And then uh -huh. sometimes you give up and you're like, okay, how about I'll just give you a small dose of an opioid or maybe I'll give you one dose of methadone. Yeah. Um, methadone, or, right. Mm -hmm. Or tell them to like, why don't you go home and try to taper it yourself mm. instead of quick cold turkey? Um, or what you do is you skip the middleman, you just start them on buprenorphine. Mm. Um, and within one hour, they can be symptom free and feel great. And it, it's when they leave the department feeling fantastic and when their symptoms are gone, then they're, that they're like, wow, this is a great medication. And that's their destination treatment. So that's what they're going to be on. That's what their provider is going to start them on um, as an outpatient. Why is uh, buprenorphine physiologically affecting them this way? In other words, does it also mm -hmm. have an antagonistic function to opioid receptors? What's going on? Yeah, it's like you're a plant. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and, and the, and the yeah. truth is, listen, all, all joking aside, we've met five minutes before we did this, but I just heard what his topic was and I'm like, we need to talk about this. So he's teaching me and honestly, I'm not an expert in this. So I'm learning along with you guys. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, so when I first learned, uh, it, it seems very complicated, but actually um, buprenorphine is an opioid agonist and an antagonist in one. Um, so what that means is you can give, uh, it, in lower doses, it acts like an opioid. Um, you can actually treat pain with buprenorphine. There are people who are on buprenorphine for pain. Um, uh, but in higher doses, there's a ceiling effect. So unlike um, morphine, where you give more and more and more and you get more respiratory suppression and sedation, right. you have this ceiling effect with buprenorphine so that you do not get respiratory suppression and sedation. So it's 
Can you overdose then at all on buprenorphine? I'm not going to say that you absolutely cannot. Right. There are cases of reported overdoses, but they're usually polysubstance overdoses. So, so it's something mixing else. with Xanax and alcohol and all this other stuff. Which, by the way, we, we'd be remiss if we didn't say the co-administration of, of benzodiazepines, mm-hmm. suppressants, and opioids or, or other drugs is a toxic stew of disaster. So... Mm-hmm. Don't do it. You know, the one advice, like, so I was dating this girl in high school and her dad was the teacher in the band at our high school. And I was like a band geek when I was younger. And so he would, he was like a father, he would be the surrogate father figure because my dad was Indian and didn't understand the American system (laughs) at all. And he said, you're going to Berkeley as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. The one piece of advice I'd give you is don't mix drugs. <laughs> he didn't say don't do drugs. He's like, don't mix drugs, which I think is very good advice. So fair enough. Back to buprenorphine. <laughs> so there's a ceiling, assuming you're not polysubstance, mm-hmm. that's the advantage. So it can treat withdrawal mm-hmm. and it can treat dependency. And what's the theory on dependency? What's the idea there? How is it helping with that? How are you not just substituting uh, like methadone for morphine, another narcotic for another narcotic? Yeah. Well, even when, uh, for the dependency, it really prevents these cravings. And these cravings persist for a long time. People who are um, who, who have abstained for years still end up with cravings. And people who are on buprenorphine or Suboxone for years, um, when they wean themselves off, mm. they oftentimes find these cravings coming back. Um, mm. And then the partial the partial agonist antagonist has another interesting effect, which means that um, if you're not in withdrawal to begin with, say you say you use IV heroin and you just shot up, mm. and then you go take a bunch of buprenorphine. Mm. It has such a high receptor affinity that it's going to kick off all of that heroin and put you into withdrawal. Oh, so let me ask a question then relating to that. Someone comes in EMS, uh, they're all out of Narcan. Could mm-hmm. you give, and they're, and they're respiratory sedation, they're mm-hmm. unconscious, you would normally give Narcan, let's say it's all gone, you're on a desert yeah. island, could you give buprenorphine? So or would it make it worse? That's a that's an awesome question. I think we'll start to see some research on that. Mm. Um, it's something that we've heard people do in the field, mm. um, and that if your friend just overdosed and you guys don't have Narcan, but you know I'm on buprenorphine, oh, you can maybe put the uh, the sublingual strip in that person's mouth, and there are there are reported cases of people being reversed. So then you could so. ch- you could change the name for that application and get a new patent and call it Bropenorphine, like bro. <laughs> I got you. Okay, that's really dumb and also inappropriate. So, so that being yeah. said, okay. And so, then there's a thought that like if, if if we use this to reverse someone, it's a more gentle reversal than Narcan. Yeah, because they're not going exactly. shouting curse words and yeah. hurling feces. Right? Although if they are doing that, you can give them buprenorphine. That makes sense. So, so you've hit them with Narcan. They're jumping out of their skin, screaming bloody murder. Mm-hmm. At that point, you can give them a little buprenorphine. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. So yeah. I'm learning a lot here. So let, let me understand this now. How do you initiate therapy in the emergency department? Do you have to have counseling? Do you have to have a plan for discharge, or can you just give them buprenorphine? Do you give them a prescription? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you go about that? All great questions. Um, I, I mean, ideally, you do have counseling and all of the other support services. You know, um, adequate treatment of opioid use disorder is not just a single medication. It's it's all of the treatment and counseling and case management that comes with it. Um, unfortunately, buprenorphine has some special licensing requirements that make it really hard for providers to just prescribe it. Mm. Um, so you may have heard about the DEA X waiver or the Data 2000 waiver. Heard explain it to us. Yeah. Um, so if you have a if you have a DEA license, uh, you have a license to prescribe narcotics. <laughs> yeah, baby. There you go. I'm the candy man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but unfortunately, you can't prescribe buprenorphine. Um, because that is dumb. Yeah. 
Yeah, can continue. So, so in order to prescribe buprenorphine, you need this thing called the DEAX waiver, um, and it's an eight-hour course for docs to take. You can take it entirely online and for free. Um, eight hours. Eight though. hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard you can click through it a little bit faster than eight hours. I didn't say that though. Yeah, that um, was not said. And NPs and PAs can do it as well. Um, for them, it's twenty-four hours. Again, onerous. Um, mm. But I mean, I can teach you doc to doc or doc to NP or PA within 15 minutes, all you need to know to feel comfortable giving this. Um, And interestingly and importantly, in a hospital setting or emergency department setting as a hospitalist or emergency medicine provider, you can administer it without the waiver because you're operating under the license of the hospital. Ah, that's important to know. Yeah, so just like residents when they start out can prescribe at a hospital. Right, right. Any ED provider can start this without getting a waiver. But can can you send them with a prescription or you can start it with a prescription still or no? So you can do either. So if you have the waiver, then you can send them with their prescription. Right, right. Um, If you don't have the waiver, fortunately the half-life is like 23 hours. And so you can load them with enough buprenorphine Uh that their symptoms are gonna be managed until they follow up. And that's where you really need um, good linkage with an outpatient treatment program. Now you're not just giving them a piece of paper and saying, good luck. Mm -hmm. You are giving them hopefully an appointment tomorrow. Dumb, crazy, stupid question from a hospitalist that doesn't know this stuff. Is it PO only or is it IV? Um, it is everything. Everything. Yeah, sublingual usually. It's per rectum? Because that's how I like my meds. I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying. No judgment. Probably. Yes. And then the other question is someone here, uh, Thong uh, Trin is saying, uh, Suboxone crazy price, $3,000 for uh, th- per 300 month cost. I think he means per, per month maybe. Is it? How expensive so that is may it? be that may be their formulation because it's generic, mm. and you can get a sublingual uh, film that's generic and cheap. Oh, got and it. It's covered by uh, almost every pair. Sublocade. Yeah, got it. Yeah, and there's okay, right? And well, what about so people? So sublocade. Yeah, um, that comment that actually refers to another concept, which oh. is that if a person's opioid receptors are blocked by buprenorphine, then it's protective. So I give a patient a ton of buprenorphine, send them on their way. Say they say, screw this appointment, I'm not gonna go into treatment right now, I'm gonna go shoot up. You've kind of blocked their receptors oh, for the next 24 hours. You're like their wingman that's actually trying to get the girl. Exactly. And totally blocking. <laughs> so so okay, let me let me rewind for a second. So it seems to me like this drug, apart from the obvious harm reduction, can be used in a variety of circumstances in the emergency department to prevent death and suffering. Why isn't it used more? What are the blockades against this apart from cost and the things we talked about? And the fact yeah. that you, cause you don't need to, to have all that training if you're an emergency mm-hmm. department provider. Yeah. So what, and I would say not just ED, but inpatient too. I mean, this right. affects our inpatient colleagues just as much. You admit someone for cellulitis, they then tell you that they're on opioids. They then go into withdrawal. Um, these patients AMA at a 30% rate. So 30% of these patients who start withdrawing end up AMAing from your Dude, that, by the way, service. <clears throat> I got to say that that's great dispo for me. Uh, 30% <laughs> d- d- discharge rate. That's yeah. barely any paperwork. Yep. Fair enough. Or you yeah. start them on their treatment and then they don't bounce back. So you save That's yourself good that too. That's good too. So yeah. again, re- preventing bounce backs, hospitalists, other docs mm-hmm. in the hospital can do it. Emergency department providers can do it. And again, you learned about all this through your fellowship uh, at Vituity, this this uh, administrative fellowship? Is yeah, in a co- down this? combination from the administrative fellowship and then um, getting, uh, getting to work with a lot of people in the community. I mean, Yale and Highland. 
um, have been doing a lot of the research and kind of pioneering this. Highland and Oakland? Yeah. 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 Great place. My buddy uh, did his training there as well. well so, yeah. so, so, and again, guys, like, again, this is not to pitch the sponsor of the show, but I'm going to pitch the sponsor of the show. This is why we work with companies like this. I told you, I promised you guys I was never going to work with shitty, stupid companies again. And again, I'm not even supposed to curse on sponsored shows, but I'm just being real here. These guys are awesome. Their leadership is awesome. Their doctors are awesome. I run into them on the street and they're like, oh, we saw your show with Denise. We love working with these guys. They're doing the right thing. And these are the kind of organizations and bright spots we should promote. If you're saving lives, if you're teaching people about buprenorphine. So what 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 else around that topic before we take some comments mm -hmm. would you wanna make sure we knew that I'm not asking? Um, I mean, it really is a lot easier than you think. You asked why we're not doing it more yeah. uh, more often, why not everyone's doing it. You know, two years ago when I started um, uh, working on this project with all of our sites, we surveyed everyone and there are about nine sites doing this in our in our uh, group of uh, emergency departments. And then we asked them again a year later, are, are you guys doing buprenorphine? Are you starting a program? And that quadrupled in one year. Oh, wow. Um, and so there's more and more interest in doing this. Um, a, a big component is education. And then I think the the other big component um, is kind of, the you know, there was this big study a while back that showed it takes seven. 17 years for evidence to become standard of care. Sounds right. Yeah. That's actually conservative. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's the translation of that evidence that, that, that really excites me. How do we get like a, a bunch of docs who maybe trained one year ago or 25 years ago? How do we teach them something new? How do we show them all this evidence and how do we translate that into practice? I'm going to give you a hug because that's the whole point of what we try to do here on the show. So in this episode, we might reach more people in a single episode than 10 years of conferences. So, and exactly. you can impart, now, see, now they're gonna wanna go out and they're gonna learn how to do this. And whether you're teaching them or someone else is teaching mm -hmm. them, it will transform care in in a catalyzed amount of time. Yeah. That's right. So I'm a big believer in this platform for that purpose. So thank you for bringing that wisdom to us. Absolutely. And one thing I wanted to ask you about too was, how does this relate? Because we are talking in our five minute pre-show, we mm -hmm. were talking about, caregiver wellness. Mm -hmm. So the nurse practitioners, the PAs, the doctors, the rad techs, mm -hmm. the, everybody else who's touching patients on the front lines, how does this affect them mm -hmm. when we're, you know, quote unquote, burning out? Like, okay, okay, one second. Yeah. I talk about moral injury a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Like this idea that we are forced to do things that are morally repugnant. It's morally repugnant to me that we would put a patient out on the street with no capacity to help themselves when we know they have a fatal illness, which is opioid dependency, and we do nothing. We're hamstrung, we're powerless, and we're afraid. And, and, and to some extent, we created this epidemic, co-created it by, mm -hmm. by handing this stuff out because you know pharma told us this was the thing to do to treat pain and we're worried we're gonna get sued. And think of the conflict, right? So how does this affect that sort of wellness component of what we're trying to do? Absolutely. Um, we, we talk a lot in, in wellness. Um, there was, I think, the Stanford model that has three arms and one of them, I think, is efficiency of practice. Hmm. Um, and I think of that as like, you know, I went into emergency medicine because I like to be able to treat everything. I think of myself as like having this quiver of solutions for everything. Mm. Um, but uh, up until this, I didn't really have a great solution for opioid use disorder and opioid dependency. Yeah. Um, so these patients come in and like I like I mentioned earlier, they, they're they're vomiting, they feel awful. I'm trying my best with all my non-opioid uh, medications to get them comfortable and I'm just not succeeding. Mm. Um, and now suddenly, 
um, we have this medication that we can use that not only makes them feel better immediately, uh, but it actually improves mortality, it improves retention and treatment, um, it reduces healthcare costs because these patients stop bouncing back as much. So when I go to work and I and I have solutions for all my patients, that's a that's a shift that I feel like I want it. Um, whereas if I go to work and I just don't have solutions and I can't fix anyone's problems, that's where I feel burnt out. God, I love this man so much. <laughs> that that's that's the heart of it. Finding solutions. I'm tired of complaining. I'm tired of feeling hurt. I'm tired of feeling burned out. I'm tired of feeling powerless. Learned helplessness is so terrible. Mm-hmm. And here you are, young kid, fresh faced, goes out and says, Oh, I have a solution. Let's start pushing it. It's there in front of us. Why should we wait the 17 years for it to become practice? Right. Mm-hmm. All right. At this point, I'm going to say bye to people who want to check out. And if we end up sharing this clip as a smaller clip, we might cut it right here. So thank you. Hit share on this one. Spread the word about medication assistance therapy for opioid use disorder. Now we're going to take questions. So uh, Dr. Brown, was there anything that popped out at you or should I start peeking them? Yell, yell at me. Holler at a boy. So how long can you take this? What's the kind of duration? Would it be safe to take it for five years? Would it be safe to take it for 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. So what's the duration and of safety for using this? Yeah. Do you have to use it for life? You can. Um, so it, it's safe to take uh, for life. And, you know, uh, this is where mm. like we hand off to the addiction specialist, because I think that is a patient specific answer. There mm. are some people who are really motivated to taper off of it. Mm. Um, there are some people who use it for a year. Mm. Um, I had a patient the other day who developed dependence within 30 days after her knee replacement and came in because she tried to quit her meds cold turkey. Mm. And that might have been a patient who really only wants to be on it for a little bit of time because um, she, her dependence was new, uh, just developed in the last 30 days. Mm. Um, although I've also seen people who have been on buprenorphine for a year or two, they tapered themselves off and then relapsed and came back into the emergency department to restart. Okay, so, so okay, I'm going to read this comment because it's provocative in this sense, all okay. right? So Richard Wan says, if Suboxone strips work, why doesn't Alcoholics Anonymous adopt a shot of whiskey a day to prevent alcohol <laughs> abuse? This is about money. Money for the docs that are specializing in it, except you don't get paid, <laughs> uh, and money for the manufacturers who make this stuff. I've never seen any definitive proof that opioid maintenance works long term. Okay, I'm gonna answer one part of this and then you can take the second. Okay, Okay. the reason that AA doesn't give a shot of alcohol for alcohol dependency are, are, is twofold. Number one, alcohol is actually a direct liver toxin and will kill you over time, whereas this is actually reasonably safe, all right? Except for constipation and those sort of things that you get with opioids. The second thing is that Alcoholics cannot drink a shot of whiskey without going down the rabbit hole of drinking a whole bottle of whiskey. Buprenorphine doesn't give you, has that ceiling. So you're not gonna go down this rabbit hole and end up you know, in trouble with that. It just not, is, is not physical, physiologically likely or possible. Now, your thoughts on this? Yeah, um, so you know, in terms of the, uh, the financial aspect, it's a generic medication and I don't bill any different, like there's no billing difference, it's just a needy visit. So it doesn't matter whether or not I treat it uh, with buprenorphine or I treat it with something else. Mm-hmm. What was the second component The second of the component question? was, um, I've never seen evidence that it works long-term. Um, the evidence. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, a big meta-analysis that looked at every trial of medication-assisted treatment. So every randomized control trial. And there were at least 20. Mm. Um, and all of them showed a reduction in mortality mm. when mm. you compare patients who are on MAT to patients who are not. And I'll, I'll qualify that and say 15 of those studies at least were methadone. Mm. Um, and so there have been a lot of questions about methadone here because the concept of MAT mm. um, is giving a medication 
to treat symptoms of withdrawal and cravings. Mm. Um, and so there are three medications we use for MAT. There is methadone, there's buprenorphine, and then there's naltrexone. Mm. Naltrexone is a long-acting kind of Narcan opioid blocker. Mm. Um, and so I know that methadone conjures up a lot of kind of fear in some people's minds. I mean, we going see going to the methadone overdoses. clinic, overdose, yes. long-acting. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and and that has a different set of kind of regulations federally. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a lot of reasons, we can't necessarily start someone on methadone. But the honest truth is that the the outcomes are great on methadone as well. Mm-hmm. People mortality uh, improves on methadone. Real quick, Robbie Westerman said, uh, I never got high on my Suboxone. It gave me a life. Robbie, when are you still uh, uh, on maintenance or were you able to get off? Because I think one of the questions that I think I have always is what's the root cause of opioid dependency? Is it some deep unconscious, you know, need emptiness void that's psychological that can be dealt with over years with therapy? Is it a physical receptor genetic tendency or is it a mix of those things? Yeah. What's, what's your instinct on this? I mean, I think, it, I think it's a mix of everything, your biology, your genetics, your environment, right. um, kind of like everything else. It's hungry ghost biology. theory. Some yeah. people have put out that, you know, yeah. there's this part of the, so when you take that, that, you know, again, you take one piece off, you go, okay, let's satisfy the receptor piece. Mm-hmm. Now let's dig into yeah. the therapy. So, some, oh yeah, no, I was going to say some people start because they had a knee replacement and that was their first use of an opioid. Other mm. people start because they were having a really hard time in their life and mm. they turn to using. Mm. Um, and then some of these people have an easier time stopping and other people have a harder time stopping. So I think it's a case by case scenario. Tanya, thank you for the stars. Uh, Dr. Brown, you had a comment. Well, I think Vanessa Medina has uh, talked a, a couple of times about something that's recurring here on some of the comments and that is how do we address the stigma? So we're trying to address a medical issue, a crisis of epic proportions, mm-hmm. but then there's still somehow this stigma attached to Suboxone or to buprenorphine. What, what, what should we be doing about that? This is a great question yeah. because I can tell you in the comments I see the stigma. Yeah. Uh, so how do you think about that? Uh, it's constant. It's not going to change overnight. Mm. I think this is just where we have to keep leading, keep mm. keep being the positive change agents, keep talking to everyone about this, mm. um, talk openly about it. Um, you know, when you approach a patient without judgment and just ask them openly, they answer they answer openly and you learn a whole lot more. And we should talk to our colleagues this way. And I think also, like I try to connect with my colleagues when I do sense a little bit of stigma, whether that be a, another provider or a nurse. Mm. Um, it, 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 like we said earlier, it's touched everyone's family or their friends somehow. Mm. So it's something we can all relate to. I think personally, and this is my own philosophy, I think moralizing about this stuff is not productive. And I think, again, holding accountability is important, but I think moralizing about it doesn't help because we are largely driven by these unconscious uh, uh, things that happen. And, and so anything that we can do from a system standpoint to nudge individuals in the right direction in a harm reduction direction in a direction that is better for their family. Forget about them. Let's say you think they're a piece of crap for being a weak person who's addicted. And there are people who think this. I disagree with them strongly, but think about their families. If there's a way you can protect their families from the addiction, that's the the sequelae of that addiction, then wouldn't you want to do it? And, you know, if it, if it's a chronic disease, we have diabetics on metformin for life. We have diabetics on insulin for life. Why can't we have somebody who suffers with this disease on it for life if it's if they're productive members of society, they're doing okay, you know, it doesn't have a lot of downside except for cost. And I bet the cost will come down the more you destigmatize it. Mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And even if you can't put your stigma away, mm. um, there is so much evidence, you, you can't ignore the evidence that it improves outcomes, it improves mortality. Mm. Um, it is really achieves that uh, IHA triple aim, quadruple aim, mm. um, reducing costs. 
um, helps me in my efficiency of practice. Mm. So. Mm. You, oh, go ahead. So uh, <clears throat> I got another one from mm -hmm. Matt Slossman. Uh, What's the potential pre-hospital application followed by fried by uh, repeat uh, overdose patients? We're slinging Narcan like crazy. Is this something we could look at seeing in the field in the future? And I think, you know, when we talk about burnout, we talk about moral injury, um, we've got to include all those first responder paramedic guys who are really seeing yeah. this up close and very personally yes. sometimes. I got to talk to you guys direct for a second. The pre-hospital people send me the most impassioned messages of anybody. They are suffering, you guys. Like, And remember, these are guys that get paid a lot of times minimum wage mm -hmm. to do the kind of work that would give a, a tough, burly dude, stereotypical masculine person PTSD for the mm -hmm. rest of their life. And so this question is very valid. Can we, can we improve the conditions and perceived power and and if efficacy of our frontline pre-hospital staff with this yeah solution i mean they have been the uh the most eager colleagues i've seen they, mm. for for every case that i see they see many more because they're seeing patients that decline transport they're right. seeing cases that expire in the field and don't come in right um, they see a lot more than we do and they have been leading the way um, whether that is distributing narcan um, and i believe uh, don't quote me on this but i believe that there are some ems systems that are trialing initiation of buprenorphine suboxone in the field oh wow yeah yeah so good so we're starting to yeah. look at it we're starting to study it okay absolutely other thoughts or questions this has been an insanely helpful discussion for me because I get asked these questions a lot and I keep telling people, look, I understand the vagaries of it, but I need to talk to an expert. And now we have an expert. And I really want to thank you, Dylan. This was super helpful. I think if it, if it influences five people in this audience, and there've been like 500 mm -hmm. people watching, you know, live five people in this audience to go out learn more about it, implemented in their own emergency department, hospital, whatever, pre-hospital paramedic on their rig and, and it's part, or it starts a new trial. We've done good, I think, because mm -hmm. I'm actually a believer in this approach. And until we figure out the root cause of addiction and figure out how to target that, we have to treat the, the we treat it the way we do, which is like this with medication assisted therapy. Absolutely. And uh, the, the, the field has developed some awesome toolkits and protocols. Two years ago was an entirely different scene developing the protocols was a little bit more challenging. Now we have them. If anybody wants to learn more, feel free to email me. I'll give this guy my email address so you can put him in the show notes um, and I'll be able to share information. Um, we also uh, published a, a white paper uh, with Vituity on how to start MAT uh, out of the ED. Um, so we can, we can get that to you guys if you're interested in that. Pinga, so we'll, we'll make sure to have contact information available in the show notes, uh, potentially in the description and in the stuff when we repost it here mm -hmm. on YouTube, on the podcast, if you're listening, and elsewhere. Denise, you had a follow-up from... Uh... I just wanted to give a shout... I just wanted to give a, a special shout-out to Robbie Westerman. I think your comments have been incredibly insightful. Um, it's kind of like a hair club for men thing. Um, <laughs> this is a guy... Who, I'm also the president. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, who... Uh, has basically gone from a user of this medication and a homeless guy to now almost finishing his uh, nurse, nursing practitioner degree. Oh, wow. And I just think that is pretty flippant spectacular. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to say congratulations, and uh, we're all very proud of you. That's great. I have goosebumps, dude. <laughs> and that's unusual for me because I've had my goosebump back to me. I had a total parasympathetic. So this is like a violation of the laws of nature. Yeah. Robbie, congratulations. Thank you Absolutely. for weighing and thank you for being so honest and vulnerable too in mm -hmm. your own experience because there's so much stigma 
And the truth is now you're going to go on to this amazing life and you go from homeless to having a life. And I think that's the most powerful sort of uh, statement that can be made. We can't make statements like that because we're third parties to this. Yeah. So thank you again, Dylan. What an yeah. honor, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks thank for you, brother. Will you come back on the show in the future? Absolutely. And Whatever I, want, I want to shout out Denise Brown and Vituity for making this possible. <laughs> this is the kind of kind of partnership we want to keep having you guys um and i want to thank my supporters who support us with five bucks a month doing this thing they make all this stuff possible i have all this cool gear because of them and also the sweater i, I use their money to buy a sweater nice because i need one i'm cold <laughs> people all right guys i love you stay safe out there share this video and Thanks we out peace Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.